For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Father, please give us grace to hear and receive your word. Please give us focused minds to pay closer attention to the things that we have heard. And please give me grace to speak truly that my words would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Nothing good dwells in me. It's a startling opening clause from Romans chapter 7, 18. And is it really true? Don't the heathen show virtue sometimes? Don't we sometimes do the right thing. Um, yes, I think sometimes we do the right thing. And yet this statement is a profound truth. I want to unpack uh, actually most of the words of it to explain what I believe the scripture is saying here. Um, note the word dwells, as in like takes up residence, abiding with constancy. Right? That um, Things which you know, come close to a virtue, we might manifest here and there as circumstances permit, but constant, permanent virtue, abiding virtue, does not dwell in us. All human attempts at being good are inconstant and always fail. And by good here, the scripture doesn't mean um, some of our kind of cultural bare minimum baseline definitions of good. Right? I mean, when a mother feeds her child, that's a good thing. But even the animals do that, right? It's not saying some sort of minimum definition of good. It's good in its fullest sense. Good is meaning what would describe God himself. God alone is good, Jesus said. What is holy and pure and unchanging and perfect. The best of human virtue doesn't uh, never ever even attains anywhere close to that but even but most of our life we're not even living in the best heights of human virtue so often if we're honest with ourselves even things that we thought in the moment were our good accomplishments with hindsight with the illumination of the holy spirit we realize over time actually weren't anywhere near as virtuous as we thought may even have had vice motivating them for instance how much to take one, just one classical virtue of courage. How much courage is really um, funded by vanity, wanting to impress others or whatever. Nothing good dwells in me. This is, always has been a, a counter-cultural statement. People have always thought, ancient Greece to now, that we just need a bit of refinement and affirmation. No, the scripture says otherwise. Nothing good dwells in me. Paul then clarifies, that is in my flesh. That is in my flesh. And there's a very important distinction to understand when we hear this word flesh, which occurs a lot in Romans 7, right? Um, and for some of you, this will be very familiar teaching, but for some, perhaps not. The word flesh there is not a synonym for body, the way we talk about flesh, like flesh meat or something. It's not a synonym for your body. It's a theological term for our inner nature, which is body and soul, which is fundamentally broken since Adam and Eve first disobeyed God. So Adam and Eve, before the fall, they had bodies. The Greek word for body is soma. They had bodies, but they didn't have a flesh. 
the Greek word is sarks. Because that inward radical brokenness was the result of their first disobedience. They had bodies but not flesh. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Here, what I think Paul's doing in terms of the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul is gathering together this very complex argument of Romans 7 to say that God has left something good in us, not morally good, nothing that we've done or attained or can do, but just a compass, a sense of right and wrong stamped on our nature from when he made us. Right? We're made in the image of God, it says in Genesis. And part of that image is that implanted in the highest the most noble part of ourselves, sometimes it's in Scripture called the mind, sometimes it's called the spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of man. There's some still sense, despite all of our bentness and brokenness, some sense of where the horizon is, of what is good and what is evil, according to how God, God's nature is. That remains in us. And sometimes theologians have called that the natural law. It's why we see in general cultures all understand that stealing and murder aren't good. There's something in us that still knows, God, there's a fundamental right and wrong embedded in the cosmos as God would have it. And God has left, left within us some needle. And it's not always right. It can go wrong. It's not something you can trust entirely. But in general, we can say, God has left us with a sense of what we ought to do I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. That desire comes from that remaining mark of God on our, stamped on our persons. The desire to do what is right. But having a compass to know which way to go and having the gas to get there are very different things. There is, in fact, as we know from experience, um, especially those of us who are in the midst of raising younger children, there's a, all the world of difference between knowing what the right thing to do and actually doing it. That is the rub that Paul is getting at. The distance between what we know we ought to do and what we find ourselves actually doing. A distance which was actually made more severe and acute after he revealed his law on Sinai. Right? Now we know that not only have I broken the rule of like the instinctive natural law of don't kill, don't steal, but oh, dishonoring his name and not keeping the Sabbath and these other principles... God, these laws that God laid out. Even worse, the Spirit speaking through St. Paul showed how even having the law made more clear made our situation worse. Earlier in Romans 7, Paul says, I wouldn't have even known what coveting was. I wouldn't have had an instinct that there was a moral fault there until I heard the command, do not covet. And now all of a sudden, I really want to covet. Right? Even hearing the law made it worse for the Jewish people and for all of us. New rebellion emerged when the law was made clearer. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's the root of what I'm wanting to bore into this morning. It's something, um, this statement, not having the ability to carry it out, is something that is overlooked for the most part outside of Christian circles, like in all like the ancient Greeks, all these different schools of philosophy still embedded in our universities today, have this idea that, well, if you just have the virtue described and its benefits kind of make their impression on you and you set your will to do it, voila, you'll be virtuous. If only it worked that way. If, we think, if you think it works that way, the scripture would say we're tricking ourselves. 
No, we don't have the ability to carry it out. And when we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that. The scripture leads us to that self-understanding, which maps on to our experience. I don't have the ability to carry it out. So Christ, speaking through St. Paul, has given us the accurate diagnosis of our condition. We have some sense of what's right, no ability to carry it out. But like a good doctor, the Holy Spirit doesn't just give the diagnosis, he also supplies the remedy, describes and points us towards the medicine for this problem. And so that's what we see kind of weaving through this chapter of, this, um, of, of Paul's letter to the Romans. This sort of ultimate sort of sense of ordering on total despair of the futility of it, to know what's right and not be able to do it, to actually be doing the thing that I hate. When we come to recognize that that is also true in our lives, inevitably we'll have a feeling like how St. Paul expressed, how do I get out of this? Right? In his words, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a remedy, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus rescues us from our confounded, tied up in knots predicament. At, at two levels, cardinally and centrally, and this is the gospel that we've all are banking our lives on, right? He has taken away for us the eternal consequences that would have come from our inability to follow God's law. Our inability to follow God's law isn't some minor misdemeanor. It's an offense against the God of the universe. And there's consequences for that, which the scripture calls hell. But by dying on the cross in our place, the consequences taken from us were given eternal life instead. That's how he rescues us from this body of death, first and foremost. And connected to it, deriving from the great gift of himself on the cross. By sending his Holy Spirit, God has now actually planted a seed in us, the seed of his word, it's called in Second Peter, that is beginning to sort of change our inner ecosystem to beginning to actually conform us from the inside out to be able to follow his will. Thanks be to God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's now possible not to sin. I don't mean that I'll just starting today, you'll never sin again. I mean in a given moment of temptation, we now have the means of not just being stuck in this try harder, fail harder cycle, but by crying out to God, admitting that my efforts have gotten me nowhere, and saying, God, I can't follow your law. You alone are obedient and perfect and holy, Jesus. Please, save me from this sin. Strengthen me, help me to follow your will. I mean... The liturgical phrase we have with the Ten Commandments really grabs it well. Have mercy on us. First, we need forgiveness. And incline our hearts to keep this law. Right? Mold us and shape us and reshape us. So that we would begin to, in some moments, year over year, growing into more and more moments, we would actually carry out your good and gracious will. We would resist sin and have your virtue bloom within us. Until after the end of our lives, when we, by God's grace, get to go to heaven, there it won't even be possible to sin, 
We won't, we'll be 100% free from ever slipping back into this Romans 7 push and pull again. We will be set free to only follow God's will and please Him fully in our own selves by the power of the Holy Spirit who will remain with us forever. So there's an important condition here, though. Um, The thing that enables us to sometimes follow God's will and His law is the Holy Spirit, not ourselves. And it's not ourselves at both levels. Obviously not willfully falling into sin, but also not striving just for like virtue acquisition by our own efforts. That's still, according to the wisdom of Romans 7, part of the flesh, just trying to follow rules as part of the flesh. And it might seem like, well, what's the real difference in the sort of final product? Like, how different are these two things I'm describing versus just trying to be good versus asking the living God to grow his goodness within us? Um, You're right, to a security camera, they might look kind of similar. But we know all the time that things that are similar can be fundamentally different. The image that comes to mind is how different um, a cubic zirconia from a diamond is. You know, at two, at two foot's distance, they're indistinguishable. Take a hammer to them and you'll find out right away which is which, right? And in the right light, you can clearly see the difference. This was a summer spent working at a jewelry store speaking. Um, they may look a little bit similar from, from the distance, but they are fundamentally different, and one will endure and the other will not. Likewise, virtue that is Christ's virtue grown in us by the power of the Holy Spirit versus just attempting to be good and do good. Inasmuch as we, in our brokenness, also try to slip back into just trying to be good and do good, we will keep experiencing this Roman 7 dilemma. That oh, I'm trying to do it right, but it's not working. In fact, I'm doing the opposite. And the kind of repeated lesson that we learn and until it becomes habit, God willing, over the course of a Christian lifetime, is to begin with confessing, as Paul confessed, there's no good in me. Every moral juncture, every fork in the road, every presented choice, there's no good in me. I'm going to do the wrong thing. Lord, help me. And now we're living by the Spirit as the Holy Spirit then has been invited in, in that moment, to guide you in his own paths. But the life then of the Christian will grow in goodness and obedience, but it won't be to your credit or my credit, it will be to God's credit. It will be to his glory forever and ever. Amen.